Well, what a treat to worship with you this morning on Mother's Day. The hardest working people on the face of the earth, especially if you have little ones between the ages of zero and 12 or so, no doubt. But be encouraged. It's just easier once you get past that, right? No doubt. I asked my sweet wife, Libba, I said, tell me something that you've learned from our two boys, from our two sons. And our two sons are wonderful young men. And she said, I am amazed by the hunger for God and the kingdom concepts that kids can grasp at an early age. They are never too young. It's a great word. She also learned that you should never put a ceiling fan and a bunk bed and a little boy in a Superman cape in close proximity to each other. (laughs) We learned that too. I read a quote last week. It said, an ounce of mother is worth a pound of preacher. That is absolutely true, especially today. It's absolutely true. We could just get a couple of mics up here, kind of have open mic time and have moms come up here and just share pearls of wisdom with us. And we would be the better for it, I am convinced. So make sure that today when you have that opportunity, if your mom is still with you, that you have the opportunity to really say thank you and to lift her up. Let her know that she's special. Right? Well, let's pray as we get into the Word. Father God, thank you that uh, you give us the opportunity to look into your word and to know truth. We just pray for for the next few minutes that you would meet us here, that you would speak to our hearts, and that we would trust you with that. Lord, push us and challenge us and encourage us now. We love you and lift up our time to you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, one of the great theological truths, there are some great theological truths that still really confound me and amaze me, really. Uh, One of those is that God would use me, right? That God would use you. Paul said there are not many wise, there are not many noble, and I think that's true. But that God would use me and that He would use you. That He would use the church, this thing called the church, and He would put us between Himself and the masses is still just amazing to me. But that's what he does, and that's really what we're going to look at today. Let me give you a roadmap, or for us, let me give you a little GPS direction here, a little GPS tracking of where we're going for for the next 30 minutes or so. First off, I'm going to give you a phrase. I'm going to give you a phrase that I've used in my life, in my decision making, my daily decision making for the last 40 years or so. I'm going to give you a phrase, and then I'm going to tell you what that phrase does not mean. What the phrase does not mean. Next, we're going to look at a story from Scripture that encapsulates that idea. And then finally, I'm going to work to apply that to our lives, especially as it applies to families. Because I'm the family pastor, and I get to look at that a little bit with you. We're going to focus on the family. We should start an organization. So here's the phrase, you ready? Here's the phrase, put yourself in a precarious position 
that demands the necessity of divine intervention. Let me say that again. Put yourself in a precarious position that demands the necessity of divine intervention. When I was 15 years old, a man moved to my hometown, a man named Tom Nelson, and he started a church called Denton Bible Church. And he started a Bible study with a high school friend of mine named Bob Patton. And uh, he invited Bob to come over to his house for Bible study once a week. And Bob Patton went to that Bible study, and Tommy told him, he said, look, if you're going to be part of this Bible study, you've got to bring a friend. And so Bob went out and got my friend Brian Bach. And Brian came to that Bible study, and Brian, they told Brian, he said, Brian, if you're going to come be part of this Bible study, you've got to bring a friend. So Brian went out and he got me. He said, Mike, you've got to come be part of this Bible study that we're doing. So I went to the Bible study, and he said, Mike, if you're going to be part of the Bible study, you've got to bring a friend. And so I went out, and I got Ross Tatum, tuba player in our band at the high school. And I said, Ross, you've got to come be part of this. And so for the next three years, we met with Tom Nelson in his living room about once or twice a week, and he taught us everything that he knew. It was an awesome time. It was fantastic. But one of the first things that he impressed upon us and taught us was that phrase, to put yourself in a precarious position that demands the necessity of divine intervention. Well, let me share with you what this does not mean, because it sounds a little dangerous, right? And it it can be a little dangerous, but let me share with you what it doesn't mean. First off, this is not a call to tempt God. That's what Satan did with Jesus in the wilderness. That was Satan's trick in Luke chapter 4, verse 9. He took Jesus, and he took him to Jerusalem, to the, to the Temple Mount, the highest point in all Jerusalem, and he took him up to the pinnacle of the Temple Mount. And he said, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself off the temple, and the angels of God will come and catch you. And Jesus said back to him, he said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, Deuteronomy 6.16. No, we don't drive 100 miles an hour down Katy Freeway and close our eyes and throw our hands in the air and say, Jesus, take the wheel. Right? We don't, we don't test God. That's not what he meant. It's also not a call just to be reckless or weird or out of control or bizarre just for an adrenaline rush because I have freedom in Christ. That's not what it means. I guarantee you Tommy wouldn't have told a bunch of 15-year-old guys to do that. He wouldn't have said that. It's probably not, as a matter of fact, at all a public display. It's probably not big or flashy or fame-seeking or anything like that. This is probably done in relationships. It's probably done within family. It's probably done with friends during the week, at church, at work, at home with your, with your family, with your kids. And this is done in the line at Whole Foods or at Walmart where I shop. So it's, it's not going to be a big flashy deal, right? It's also not sinning so that God has to rescue me. No, it's not, it's not we're not going to go sin so that God has to rescue us. That's Jonah, right? That's what we've been looking at the last two weeks with, with West. God said to, to Jonah, go to Nineveh. And he went, instead of going northeast, he went southwest. He went down to a town called Tarshish. Remember? Tarshish, right? Now, 
I want to make West feel really good when he gets back. And when he hears this recording, I want us to all say the word Tarshish so that he'll feel better, okay? If you'll say that with me, that'd be great. You ready? Tarshish. Well done. Way to go. So it's not any of those things, right? But let's look in the scriptures at what this looks like. If I were to ask you, besides the passion stories in the Gospels, what is the most oft-told story in all of your Bible? Would you be able to tell us what that story is? What is the most oft-told story in all of Scripture? Well, it's a miracle. It's the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. God gives us that story four times. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's even foreshadowed, by the way, in 2 Kings chapter 4 with Elisha. So God wants us to see this four times. Why does He do that? The only miracle like that, besides the passion. Well, there's some great theological reasons why God would put this in here. What I think He does is put this in here theologically to show us that Jesus is the greater Moses. I don't know if you know what that means, but Jesus is the greater Moses. For instance, Moses turns the water to blood at the plague, right? So the nation can leave Egypt. Jesus turns water to wine and brings new life. He is the greater Moses in that respect. In this story, Moses calls upon God and prays that he would provide for the nation in the wilderness. And God rains down manna and quail from heaven. So they can have banana bread and manicotti and things like that. It's awesome. However, Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus feeds 5,000 from nothing. Ex nihilo is the word, out of nothing. Jesus feeds the 5,000. He is the greater Moses, the one that the nation is looking for. So there are spiritual reasons too. Those are great theological reasons, but there are spiritual reasons that, that he would put this in here four times. He says we are to seek the bread that leads to eternal life. We're to seek that. That's the focus of the Gospel of John. He says, I am the bread of life in John. Christ is our spiritual sustenance. And that is true. So there are spiritual reasons to look at it. But today I want to look at the practical reasons that this is given four times. Jesus is going to be leaving the apostles and this is a transition time in the Gospels. There's a coming rejection that Jesus is going to experience that has already begun. Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth, and they reject him. The Jewish leaders are rejecting him. The nation is going to begin rejecting him. And so Jesus is going to turn his attention, starting with this story, toward Jerusalem and toward the cross. And he has a continuation in the middle of that to the training of the twelve. So that's what he's going to do. This is a time for the disciples to step up into their ministry. He says to them, together we're going to do this. I'll be with you. I'll energize what's going to happen behind you. But it's time to step up. This is prophetic for those guys. This is saying this is what it's going to be like when I'm gone. This is prophetic for us. As Jesus says the same thing to us. He says, you'll be my hands and feet. That's really the essence of the book of Acts. When you look at it and look at what the apostles did. 
This is the age that we're in today. This is where we are. We don't see him, but we act on his behalf. The miracles that God does, he takes us and he puts us in between God and the multitude. So how do we do this? How did Jesus do this with the disciples, with the twelve? And that's what we're going to look at in Luke chapter 9. So if you'll turn there with me, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9 to see Jesus put his disciples in a precarious position. Now, Luke chapter 9. The context here is critical, right? Context is always important when you're doing Bible study. We know this, Bible study 101. You want to look at the context of what's happening. The setting of the story. And what you want to look at here in Luke 9 is what's happened in in Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8 is important, and the first part of chapter 9 is important to understand the feeding of the 5,000. The setting in in Luke chapter 8, Jesus shows the crowds, and he shows the disciples he is a complete redeemer. He is sovereign over disaster, over demons, over disease, and over death. Four miracles. He calms the storm. He redeems emotionally in the storms of life. He casts out demons from a lunatic, literally one who howls at the moon, a man who is out of his mind, and he heals him and casts out the demons, and he restores him mentally. He redeems mentally. He heals a woman with a hemorrhage. He puts her back into community. He restores socially. And finally, he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. He restores and redeems eternally. So he is the perfect redeemer, the complete redeemer for the Jews and for the Gentiles. But the question is, would the multitudes accept him? Thousands were flocking to Jesus. He was getting all kinds of likes on social media. But would they accept him as the Lord of their hearts? That's the question. So as the scene unfolds, Jesus finds out And we see this in the books of Matthew and Mark. Jesus finds out that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been beheaded by Herod Antipas. And he has got to be in mourning. He's got to be greatly affected by his friend and the forerunner of the Son of God being killed. And he's been doing all of this ministry. And he wants to get away with all of his disciples for some alone time so he can grieve, so he can rest. But before they go, Jesus starts their training to be without him by sending them out on a short-term mission trip. So he sends them out. So look at Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to underline in your Bibles, if you do that, I want you to underline or make a note to underline what he says there. He calls the 12, he calls them together in community, he gives them power and authority. He gives them the power that he has and the authority to use it over all the demons and to heal disease, and then he sends them out and underline to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. You're going to see that again in just a few verses. So make a note and underline that. 
Then in verses 3, 4, and 5, he gives the disciples their marching orders. And he says to them, travel light and see who accepts me and accepts my message. I want you to go to the people and give them a test. Will they be hospitable to divine messengers? If they accept you and your message, then they accept me and they accept my heavenly Father. So they go out. In verses 7, 8, and 9, even Herod was impacted. He's fearful. Herod is afraid that John the Baptist has been risen from the dead and come back to haunt him. And he says a very interesting question in verse 9. He says, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? Sets up what happens in the feeding of the 5,000. Who is this man? Jesus is about to show us who this man is. So, Jesus sends out the 12, and they return. Verse 10, when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Jesus sends them out, they come back, and when they return, they give an account of all that they had done. Not what God had done. I want you to circle the word they in your Bibles. They gave an account of all that they had done. Imagine the scene like this. The disciples go out, they come back to Jesus after their first short-term mission trip without Him, and they're excited. They say, you should have seen James. Oh my gosh, Jesus, you should have seen James. He kept saying, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's what He kept saying to them. You should have seen James. Oh my gosh, you should have seen Peter. Man, Peter rocked. He was awesome. He just kept casting out demons and healing people right and left. You should have seen Peter, man. He was singing, we will, we will rock you. Oh, you should have seen John. John was amazing. He kept talking about the Word, and he kept talking about life. He kept uh, things that we really didn't even understand, the light and the life. You should have seen John, man. You should have seen us, Jesus. Well, the next statement is interesting. In the middle of verse 10, Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida, about 10 miles away from where they were. I think he says, come on, boys, follow me for a test. The fact that they were pretty high on themselves was not lost on Jesus in his training of these men. I think this is supported in the Gospel of John over in chapter 6. If you'll keep your finger right there in Luke chapter 9 and turn over to John 6. These guys needed humility. And Jesus is about to give them the opportunity for that. John chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. You with me? Verses 5 and 6, chapter 6. Says this, therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him. Now, this is the same story of the feeding of the 5,000 from John's perspective. Same story, same scenario. 
Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Jesus sees all of these crowds coming, and he says to Philip, now this is Philip's hometown, Bethsaida. He and Peter and Andrew are from this area. They grew up there. They knew what was around there. They knew where they could go buy food if they needed some food. And Jesus says to them, he sees thousands coming toward them. And I think he just leans over and rhetorically says, hey, where are we going to find some food for all these folks? He knew what he was going to do. He was saying this to test him, it says. For he had a plan and he already knew what he was going to do about it. So turn back over to Luke 9. He was saying, boys, here's a test. Let's see how far you've really come. They're about to get an audiovisual of ministry from Jesus. So look at nine, chapter 9, verse 11 in Luke. The crowds were aware of this and followed him. <clears throat> and welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. The crowds were aware of this and followed him. I envision this like when I went and watched Tiger Woods play in the British Open. And you would see crowds, thousands of people following him. He'd hit a shot, he'd hit it down the fairway, and they would run to the next shot. Huge crowds were just following him all over the place. Same with Jesus right here. The crowds were following him. But, it says, he welcomed them. In mourning and in exhaustion and with compassion for the lost sheep, he welcomed them. And then it says, he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Does that sound familiar? It should. That's verse 2. You should, in the margin of your Bible, you should write the words, uh-oh, etch it in the glass of your phone. Uh-oh, because Jesus is about to give him a test. That's a parallel verse to verse 2. Jesus is doing the exact same thing that the disciples were just doing. Look at verse 12. Now the day was ending in the 12. You can really see the heart of the disciples right here in verse 12. Now the day was ending, and the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. The disciples' heart was, send the crowds away. Jesus, we like ministry. We just really don't like people. Let's just hang out with our brothers. Let's just hang out with you, Jesus. We like that. They are in a desolate place. The Greek word there doesn't mean a desert. It means an uninhabited place. They had moved up the countryside to an area. The Gospel of Mark says there's lots of grass, lots of green grass in the springtime. So they're in an uninhabited place. And they say, send the crowds away. We don't have enough to, to provide food for them. But Jesus has a plan to test them. Now, a note. God doesn't tempt to evil. 
God doesn't put evil in front of us and say, what are you going to do with evil? I want you to go toward that. That's not what God does. That's not what Jesus does. See also James 1.13. But he does test to bring faith and to reveal faith. I do believe that. So what I want to look at is five keys to effective ministry. Five keys to effective ministry. Now let's look at verse 13 as we start there. He said to them, verse 13, you give them something to eat. A simple request. A very, very non-flashy command. You give them something to eat. The first key point to ministry is a calling to minister within community. There's a calling to minister within community. That's what these guys had. He calls them and us to something bigger than ourselves. That's what ministry is. He calls us to something bigger than what we are. You're going to be a blessing above you and beyond you. That's why when you become a believer and we baptize you, we don't take you and put you under the water and hold you under and send you to glory. Because God has called you to something. He's called you to do something. He's called you to be witnesses, to disciple, and to love people. He hasn't just called us to get blessing for our careers and our kids and our ambitions. No, he says, you give them something to eat. Well, look at their response. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. They say, we just have five barley loaves, Jesus, and two fish. We have the food of the poor, five granola bars and two sardines. They're not walking around with big tunas here. We have just a little bit. The book of John tells us that this is just a little boy's sack lunch. That's all they got. And look at verse 14, the first part. For there were about 5,000 men. The book of Matthew tells us that there are 5,000 men besides women and children, which means there's probably somewhere around 15,000 or so people here. And he says to, to the disciples, you feed them. Now, I've seen this happen. I've seen the feeding of 15,000 to 20,000 people. A couple of years ago, I took a group of high school guys to the Passion Conference in Atlanta, and we went to the Georgia Dome. And on that Saturday of that conference, we're in the Georgia Dome with about 15 to 20,000 people. And, it, and it's time, it's noontime, and it's time for us to have lunch. And so we're there, and we're going to have lunch, and they're going to feed us. They have truckloads of boxes of Jason's Deli. And they have an army of volunteers. And we get up from our section and we walk up the aisle to the concourse. And they systematically hand us a Bach lunch and a bottle of water. And we filter back down into our seats. And it was a machine. And they did it. And we, they fed 15,000, I don't know, 20,000 people. Jesus has five barley loaves and two sardines and 12 disciples that don't know what they've gotten themselves into. That's what Jesus is working with. The second key to ministry is a crisis of faith. This is a precarious position that demands the necessity of divine intervention. They realize they can't do this. 
We have to realize that as well. Without Jesus intervening, we're in trouble. Jesus wanted this to be marked in their minds and their hearts for the rest of their lives. And He's building humility into them. You can't do this without me. The third key to ministry, you've got a calling to ministry, a crisis of faith. The third key is a commitment to trust. Look at verse 14. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. Have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. Now, my Texas A&M higher math kicks in right here, okay? If there's about 15,000 people uh, and they're going to sit down in groups of about 50 each, that's about 300 groups. I'm checking my notes right here. That's about 300 groups, and if there's 12 disciples, that's about 25 groups per disciple, right? And so I can just see the scene. The disciples are going out to this mass of people. Peter walks up to the first group, and he says to them, hey guys, y'all sit down. Group of about 50, y'all sit down in the grass. And they're going to ask a logical question, right? Why? And Peter's going to look at him and say, we're having supper. And they're going to ask the logical question, right? What's for supper? And he's going to have to say, I don't know, but I'll get back to you. Then he's going to go to the next group over here, about 50 of them, and he's going to say, you guys, sit down. And they're going to ask him the logical question, why? And he's going to say, we're going to have supper. It's going to be awesome. And they're going to say, what's for supper? And he's going to say, I don't know. And he's going to do that 25 or so times, and every one of the disciples are doing exactly the same thing. They're going out to that group of of people, and they're in their small groups, and they're saying, I don't know. I don't have the answers. I'm not sure, but I'll get back with you. I don't know. I don't know. And they say that over and over and over again. Jesus has put them in a precarious position. But, to their credit, they exercise a commitment to trust. And that's what we got to do. Verse 15, they did so and had them sit down. Well, looking at the task at hand and all that they had, they realized we can't do this in and of ourselves. That's called humility. That's the place Jesus wanted them. That's the place Jesus wants us. That's the place Jesus says, I will show up. They can't, I can. We can't change people's hearts. We can't convert them. We can't grow them. These are heart issues that only Jesus Christ can address and do. Unless God gives us grace in the midst of ministry, we're going to make a big mess of things. We have to have Him do His work. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. Well, look at verse 16. Then He took five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, He blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. He looked to heaven. Interestingly, when he was blessing a meal, he looked to heaven. And he blessed that meal, giving giving thanks to the Father, and he broke the barley loaves. 
And he kept giving them to the disciples for them to go and give to the multitude. The next key to ministry is a continual going back to Jesus. Maybe the most important part of the whole story. First you go to Jesus with all that you have, the sack lunch of your life. And you say, I will be what you want. I will go where you say. I will say the things you ask me to say. Take whatever Jesus gives you. Then you go and give it away. And then you go back to him. This is a daily going back to know him, to hear him, to be filled by him. Are we doing this every day? Are you doing this every day? Or are we really just saying, I can tackle life on my own. I got this day, Jesus. Is that what we're saying? Well, it's interesting. They never saw the miracle. How did Jesus do this? The text doesn't tell us, does it? The text doesn't tell us how Jesus did this. The disciples took the two barley loaves and a piece of fish, and Jesus made abundance out of that. He created right there. Not sure exactly how he did it, because it doesn't say. But they come to him, they have their baskets. He breaks a little bit, and right there in their baskets probably, he created something out of nothing. See also Genesis 1 and 2, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 1. He created something out of nothing. We also have to keep in mind that many times we don't see what God is doing behind the scenes, do we? We don't see what God is doing in the life of other people and in their hearts, but He is working. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, A couple of summers ago, my sweet wife Libba and I went down to Nicaragua on a mission trip, and we took a group of high school kids down there and had just a marvelous week. It's a fantastic time. The uh, the folks down there provided interpreters for it, which interpreters for us, which was really great for me. I really appreciated that. The interpreter that we had for our group, who took us into a prison there to do prison ministry, among many other things, was a guy named Jesse. And Jesse was this awesome guy, younger fella, but a guy who had such a tender heart, such a wonderful spirit about him. And he loved people well, and you could tell he just had a passion for Jesus and a passion for ministry, and he did it really well. Jesse was just a phenomenal interpreter for us during our week. But we could tell there was more to his story than what he was telling us. And he wouldn't really tell us that much. He had a big scar all the way down his arm, and he had tattoos all over him that had a bunch of gang symbols in them. We could tell this man had a different life at another time. And so at the end of the week, we asked him to tell us his story. And he said, well, he said, I was born and raised in in Managua, Nicaragua, and uh, I got involved in drugs, and I became a drug addict. And so my mom sent me and my two brothers away, and she sent us to California. Like, that was going to fix things. They sent him to California, and sure enough, he got involved with a gang. He and his brothers got involved with a gang there. And one night, a rival gang jumped one one of his brothers and beat him up really bad. And so Jesse and his two brothers, a little later, tracked down the guy who did that, and they went and they killed him. They knifed him and killed him. 
So he and his brothers got arrested and got convicted of murder and put into the California penitentiary. He served seven years and they let him out of prison and deported him back to Nicaragua. For the third time, he got deported back to Managua. Well, one of his friends had become an interpreter, an interpreter for the ministry that we were working with called El Puente in Granada, Nicaragua. And uh, he went to Jesse and he said, Jesse, you learned English in the, in the prison there in California, didn't you? He said, yeah, I did. And he said, well, why don't you come and be an interpreter uh, for this deal that I'm doing? And he said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. And he said, we'll pay you $150 a week. And Jesse said, I can buy drugs. That'll be awesome. So he said, I'll come and interpret for you. And so Jesse went and he interpreted. The first group that came down, that put themselves in a precarious position that demanded the necessity of divine intervention was six high school girls from Michigan. Those six high school girls came down to Nicaragua to give their lives away and to trust God. And their interpreter was a drug dealer, drug addict, murderer, gang member, convict named Jesse. And all week long, those six high school girls went out in the community and did ministry. And all week long, they were telling people with their lives and with their words that there is someone who can redeem. There is someone who can take your life and change it. There is someone who can enter into you through his spirit and make you a new man. There was someone named Jesus who can totally transform your life and take your sin away if you simply believe on him. And he will give you purpose. He will give you a calling in your life to reproduce your life and the lives of others. And Jesse became a believer. He became a Christian because he was telling the story all week long. And because six high school girls came down there, they never saw the miracle. They went home to Michigan. They never saw what God did in the life of this man. We did. We reaped the benefits of what those high school girls, God love them and bless them, what they did. That's a great picture. Well, we're called to trust and go. The final key there is contentment with the leftovers. Look at verse 17. And they ate and were satisfied, and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up 12 baskets full. A sufficient amount an overabundance for the 12 disciples, for the people, for the 12 tribes of Israel by illustration. There was a contentment with the leftovers. So do you want this? Do we want this in our lives? Are, are we willing to be the little kid with a sack lunch to take your life and give it up? There's lots of ways to do that around here. Lots of ways that you can do that here at GBC. Uh, there are little things that we can do too. If you want to know about how to do that here, just ask one of us on staff. We'll be glad to show you. But there are little daily things that we can do as well. Right? We can go to a friend or a family member that maybe we're at odds with and we can seek reconciliation with them. We can maybe commit to pray for some, a friend or a coworker and really do it and follow up. We can really, really put on our schedule and calendar the items to be with Jesus on a regular basis to hear from Him. Well, how do I do this in my family? Because I get to talk about family. 
whether it's a family of one or a family of ten, what does a precarious position look like for you? Well, a couple of suggestions. First off, do ministry together. If you're single within community, you're just married with your partner, with, with your, your spouse or your husband, with your kids, do ministry together. It's not big kids and then little kids can't do ministry. They can. Choose one thing, do that really, really well. Do that one thing really well. Second thing, make space for God. Make space for God. Take tech out of the equation for an hour. If you have a meal, if you have dinner time, tell your kids, you're not bringing any technology to the dinner table here or if we go out to eat. Tell those teenagers that for an hour, we're not going to have technology here. You want to talk about a precarious position. (laughs) You tell your kids that. You go and be with Jesus every day to hear him. Go and spend time with him. Put yourself in that precarious position to hear from Jesus every day. Next thing, define success for you and your kids differently. Define what success is for you and for your kids differently. It's not do your best or be the best. But what does it mean to be faithful to what God has called you to do right now? That's the goal. The goal is godliness, not luxury, not comfort, not a D1 education. The goal is godliness and Christ-likeness. Next thing, disciple your kids plus one. Learn what you can here. Awesome. Learn all that you can. You'll be equipped. And disciple your own children. And then disciple one other person. You want something that will completely bless your life. Invest your life in somebody that's less mature and a little younger. Take your life and do that after you've been walking with Jesus for a little bit. Disciple your kids. Finally, keep Sabbath. Even if it means that you have to miss a ball game or a practice, build rest and refreshing and worship into your schedule. If there's one thing I would tell parents about where teenagers are today, this is the one thing teenagers need the most is rest that is worshipful, rest that is refreshing. That's what they need, along with you modeling that for them. So why is this here? Four times. God says, I've called you to do something beyond your capabilities. Give me your life every day. I'll bless it. I'll break it. I'll use it. You just trust me and keep coming back to me every day. That's where this whole Christian life gets exciting, is when we do that. Well, let me pray for us. Father God, you are so good to us. You have loved us so well and you have given us a revelation. You have given us your word. You've given us the pictures that you want us to see. And for some reason, you took the 12 and you said, gentlemen, you're going to have to be dependent on me to make this thing work because I'm leaving. I'm going to be apart from you in heaven for a time. And Lord, that's where we sit. I pray for us, Lord, that you would Uh, Take our hearts and you would give us humility. Teach us in a gentle way that we need you every day. And Lord, might we seek you in that. Might we sit at your feet every day and seek the good things that you have to offer. Seek what you provide for us through your spirit. Lord, that you would raise up 
a group of people who are passionate about being with you so that they can then be sent out to love the multitude. To take our little barley loaves and our little sardines and you create abundance. Thank you, Lord, for doing that in our lives. I pray that you would be pleased to do that. We love you. Thanks for our time in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.